Hi everyone, welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah. And I'm Mariana. And what's new with you, Mariana? Not much. Um, I guess the only big thing is I've been doing a lot more volunteering. And right now we do this field trip with uh, elementary school kids of various of various ages where they come out to Bandelier and watch the the rangers bird banding. And for my part, like I just I I um, introduced the kids to the to the concept of bird banding, of wildlife science, and then we have these uh, stuffed animal birds and like these fake bands. <laughs> and and we have a mist net so the kids throw the birds in the mist net and then they untangle them and they have like little data sheets and um we have them to identify the bird and take all the data on it and um it's actually kind of that's pretty crazy yeah yeah it's actually pretty hilarious um the kids love it uh they their favorite part is throwing the birds into the mist net so we had to like, I'm sure. Yeah, we had to remind them like this is fragile. <laughs> they're like, they're throwing them like they're footballs. <laughs> like Jesus. Oh wait, did you say stuffed animal birds or like taxidermied birds? These are oh no, these are stuffed animal birds. Yeah, yeah, not taxidermied. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was oh, like, my- oh yeah. Oh, that they would have be to so be delicate funny. with those. Yeah. Oh my god, that would be so hilarious. <laughs> um. Yeah. No, they're just. <laughs> They're just like these little dolls, but, um, but yeah. And then, and then we move on to another station and watch the actual bird banders banding, whatever birds they caught that day, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, the kids really like that, but, um, yeah, that's kind of all I've really been up to. Um, that's relevant. How about you? I am coming off of a birding high. Uh (laughs) I went down to South Texas to the Rio Grande Valley this weekend for a long weekend and saw 137 species of birds. Um, on Sunday alone, I saw 108 species in 12 hours. Oh my gosh. Um, and t- I saw 28 new species like for my life list. So that was pretty amazing. Um, although it was downright tropical down there. Oh yeah. Um, it was so hot, but it was amazing. And then, like, along the Gulf Coast was just beautiful. Um, yeah, and that was sort of my last hoorah because now I'm starting teaching labs this week and my freedom is being stripped from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. yeah. Now I just have a lot more to do, so I'm not going to be able to make trips places. Right, right, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Any updates on the uh, funding front? No, no, just still applying for a couple other small ones here and there. Yeah. Um, but I learned yesterday that one of my good friends and previous coworkers, shout out to Kim, um, who I worked with on the Bighorn Project, she is also starting or trying to start a project from scratch for graduate school like me um, on the carnivores of Madagascar. Holy moly, really? Uh, Yeah, and her project sounds amazing, and I've 
no doubt that she'll get um, yeah. funding from whatever source. But it's really cool because she's starting it from scratch and it's just so rare yeah. um, to just, you know, I mean, it's her ideas and, and stuff like that. So um, we were kind of bouncing ideas off of each other. And yeah. now we have we can be talking about these kind of things that, now that we're both doing it. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, other than that, just... Mostly working on alternatives to my project in case I don't get enough funding. (laughs) (laughs) How I can, like, parse down my big idea into Mm -hmm. a smaller um, chunk. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. It's an uphill journey. Yeah. Well, good luck. Yeah. Anyways, um, so we are going to start doing um, a couple new segments on the show. Now, you know, we're, we're... maturing as a podcast now we have theme music and now we're going to be doing different segments um and the first segment that we're going to start off each episode with is just sort of a recap of a couple news highlights from the past week um or in this case the past two weeks since we haven't recorded in two weeks Mm -hmm. um and then at the end of each episode i'll give sort of a little tip on how to live more sustainably um which sort of started from our, our plastics episode. If you listen to that, we sort of discussed ways to live more sustainably. So mm-hmm. I will start us off with our first news highlight okay. that I have. I just am obsessed with this since I saw it a week ago. Um, I saw on the Wildlife Society's website that researchers from the University of Alberta and the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Research Center, which I looked up all the stuff they do, and they just do amazing migratory bird research. Um, But people from both those institutions did the first ever um, satellite tagging study of common nighthawks, Mm -hmm. which uh, if some of our listeners aren't familiar with common nighthawks, they're pretty weird birds. Um, You should look them up. And, I mean, maybe you've seen them or heard them at night. They come out in the evening and they kind of have this weird noise. They're like, meh, meh, meh. <laughs> and they fly around. Like, they look like boomerangs. Um, they're really cool. Anyways, they've never been – well, no one's ever – no one has ever studied them um, – study their movements, rather. And so no one's known where they go during the non-breeding season. Um you know, they spend the summers, the northern summers, in across open habitats of North America, but then no one knows where they go in the winter. They go somewhere south, but um, don't know exactly where. And so they put um, the first ever satellite tags on a sample of, of nighthawks, and these satellite tags weigh like as much as a penny, <laughs> which is just amazing. And they were they were able to track the nighthawks and they found that they spent the non-breeding season in Brazil and some of them even like in the deep Amazon, which is amazing because it's the first time this has ever been documented. But also it's kind of strange because the nighthawks, like they're known for living in open habitats because they're flying around catching insects. And so it's kind of... Um, peculiar that they're spending time in the amazon like Mm -hmm. 
how are they feeding? I mean, I guess they could just be feeding above all the trees, but um, right. it just was really surprising to the researchers. So anyways, I'm just of late very obsessed with bird migration and like the um, progress that's being made with, especially with new technologies like this. And so I just thought this was a really cool um, news piece. And, and they have a whole, they have a, they published a paper about, um, about the study and, you know, you can read more details about that, but it's pretty cool stuff happening. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. And of course we'll have the link to that article and, um, any articles we talk about, um, in the episode notes. So across the Atlantic, um, in Botswana, the article I chose, uh, from Bloomberg is briefly covering a massacre of, African elephants in Botswana that happened very recently. In fact, today, the 12th of September that we're recording this, um, a report is due to the Environment and Tourism Minister of Botswana on the massacre from um, from the Department of Wildlife and National Parks over in Botswana. But anyway, so a nonprofit conservation organization called Elephants Without Borders, which does obviously a lot of work um, in Botswana as well as across Africa, uh, found the carcasses of 87 elephants while conducting an aerial census of the Okavango Delta last week. 87 elephants. And the obviously we all know about the elephant poaching epidemic, um, but it's often difficult for rangers and researchers to find the carcasses when elephants are poached. Um, and th- these were elephant... Uh, these were 87 elephant carcasses found at once. So it was a massive poaching operation that they, um, that they came upon. And there are multiple reasons why I chose this article. It's a very brief article. Go ahead and and click on the link to, to read it. And right below that article actually is more very relevant news. Um, a follow-up article on a national debate in Botswana to end the elephant hunting ban. Um, Botswana is one of, a couple of um, Southern African countries that have for decades been a lot more lax on their elephant protections. And there have been a lot of complaints from farmers and agricultural workers about elephants um, and those types of conflicts, which are very common um, where elephants live. And Botswana wanted to um, institute or reinstitute the hunting of elephants. So that, um, I won't talk too much about that because this episode isn't about elephants. It's actually about poaching, but there are multiple reasons why I chose these particular articles, which will become apparent throughout the episode. The elephant is not the most poached animal in the world. Uh, that unfortunate honor falls to the pangolin, uh, which we will also be talking about mostly next episode. Um, when we get more into poaching, uh, when we get more into the wildlife trade. Um, but the African elephant has been the poster child for poaching since the early 1990s. And that's mostly because it's a large charismatic animal, a large charismatic mammal. And it's almost impossible to imagine the continent of Africa without the African elephant. So it's been a really good talking point about poaching. It's definitely uh, the kind of animal that you can really connect uh, a lot of people across the globe to. 
Um, now, there are a combination of factors threatening elephant populations um, around the globe, but specifically African elephants. Um, elephants that we're talking about now, including habitat loss and degradation, climate change, all the usual suspects, of course. Um, but in the 70s and not, sorry, in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a dramatic 50% drop in African elephant elephant populations, almost entirely, eh, almost entirely due to poaching only. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's just sort of a. Um, a little intro into why I chose that um, article and what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, I feel like basically, I feel like every week we could just do an article on poaching because it. Yeah. This is every time you go onto a environmental news website, there's always some new thing like this about poaching. I mean, just before this happened with the elephant, these elephants found it was these lions poisoned in Tanzania, and before the it just there's just always something in the news about this. And even though it's not making the mainstream media, um, it's happening. And that's because this is such a, ma- a major issue. And you know, like Mariana said already that we're going to be talking about poaching in the next couple episodes, just because it's such a big topic to cover in one episode. And, you know, this is an industry that according to the UN environmental program is estimated to be worth 70 to 213 billion dollars every year and obviously that's a big range because it's impossible to precisely quantify it because it's an illegal activity and so a lot of it is under the radar and not being recorded um and that's that's sort of the the key thing here it you know this is illegal that's what we're talking about when we're talking about poaching and the illegal killing or taking of wildlife so you know, poaching doesn't have to mean that they're, you know, they're killed. It could mean they're taken and um, live animals are being sold and traded, which we'll, we'll talk about that more about the live animal trade next episode, like Mariana already said. But, I mean, this is, a, this is legitimately a global crisis that is leading a lot of species towards extinction. And, you know, the elephant is one of the, the big ones we hear about and you know elephants and rhinos are, are the big ones we hear about being poached but they're just the tip of the iceberg um when it comes to this topic mm-hmm. and you know and i feel like the focus of the focus of poaching on el- of elephants and rhinos really puts makes it seem like this issue is a predominantly african issue but it's it's not at all yeah. Um, I mean, it happens everywhere. Even in North America, I was just telling my roommate, we're going to be doing this episode. And he was like, he said, Oh, the poaching is a big issue on my family's ranch in, in South Texas. Mm. You know, people are illegally hunting white-tailed deer out of season. That's, you know, there's a, a season on white-tailed deer when you're not hunting within that season, it's illegal. And that's considered poaching. Yep. So this is, this is just a major issue. Um, and I think in places like Africa, well, no, 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 I'm everywhere where this is an issue, uh, I guess probably not poaching of white-tailed deer, but this major commercial poaching, it's causing ecological damage because you're removing tons of species and individual animals from these ecosystems where they, they play a role 
but it also has major social implications because the profits of a lot of this illegal wildlife poaching or trade um, funds like criminal syndicates or terrorists um, or it fuels corruption at a local level all the way up to you know federal government levels so it you know it's a huge threat to not only wildlife but just to social stability and like I said this is such a huge topic and it's like infinitely complex I mean we could just talk about like the elephant thing you were you know elephant poaching we I mean there's whole books that cover these topics that don't even scratch the surface Mm -hmm. so you know we're gonna try to cover as much as we can in these next couple episodes but just to our listeners realize that we can't cover everything Um, there's so many resources online where you can learn more about this and you know for if we don't cover something i still just encourage our listeners to go online and read more into the issue and read deeper into it than rhino and elephant poaching because even though that's a serious issue there's other species that are a lot more at risk mm-hmm. i mean there's species that recently have become extinct in the wild because of poaching like um, the addicts or the scimitar horned oryx, these antelope species that no one's ever even heard of. Um, and that, I mean, these, these antelope species around the world are, have just been hammered by poaching and no one has batted an eye. I mean, most people haven't batted an eye at it because they're not these big attractive animals. So anyways, um, and I guess also before we go farther, in addition to defining poaching as being an illegal activity, whether you're killing or taking animals, you know, illegal killing of wildlife doesn't necessarily mean that you're just someone's going out and shooting them with a gun. There are so many ways that people kill wildlife for various purposes. Um, and, you know, shooting is an obvious one. And for an, like an animal like an elephant, that's probably the only way you're going to be able to kill them. Yeah. Although... Where I lived in Western Zambia, one of the like leaders of the the anti poaching units told me that they had intel that these guys were starting to poison elephants by putting like uh, motor oil in bread loaves and like feeding the bread loaves to oh, no. elephants, and that's like a brand new thing that has you know that was just a piece of intel and so who knows the extent of its accuracy but um that just shows like these these poachers are creative and they're going to try to do anything yeah to to kill these animals and that leads to another way that that people kill animals is poisoning whether it's something like that or um just straight up toxins that they're poisoning animals with and in the case of a lot of elephant poisonings or elephant um, poaching events. So, you know, someone will kill, shoot an elephant, take the ivory, and leave the carcass. Well, that carcass attracts a lot of scavengers, especially vultures. And one thing that uh, anti-poaching scouts look for is, you know, a bunch of vultures circling because then they can follow the vultures and find a carcass and, you know, see if it was something that was poached, especially in an area where there's so much poaching activity that they could you know, that's an easy way to discover elephant carcasses. So a lot of poachers now are poisoning carcasses so that it kills the vultures, so the vultures don't give away their 
position. And it's not just killing the vultures, it's killing hyenas and jackals and, you know, things that eat might eat them. And it's just, it's just a domino effect. And particularly for vultures, I think we should do an entire episode on vultures. Yeah, totally. Um, and maybe have one of my friends and colleagues, Andre, who's, um, he's involved in a lot of the international vulture stuff in the old world in Africa and Asia and Europe. And anyways, uh, vultures are, have just become critically endangered in the past few years, like because they're declining at an unprecedented rate, like compared to other species, vultures are going so quickly and compared to other species, they have such a, a clear economic value. Um, anyways, we should just do a whole yeah. episode. <laughs> we should. But so poison. Okay. So just to recap going off on little tangents here, you could, people could be shooting them, um, shooting wildlife uh, for poaching, poisoning them, um, trapping them or snaring them somehow, which was also a huge issue where I lived in Zambia. Um, the project that I worked for, the Zambian Carnivore Program, a significant part of their work there is doing anti-snaring work. And uh, yeah, some nasty stuff, you know, lions that have a snare around their their wrist or their paw, and it's been on there for so long that their paw has to be amputated. Mm-hmm. I remember this lion we desnared had um, a cable around its waist that was made out of like car brake line and we removed it. And then about two weeks later we found him again and no, it was about a month later and he didn't have another snare on him, but he had evidence of a recent snare that fortunately had, had come off. But so there's just these hot spots of snaring because that's a way people can easily catch animals, especially an animal like a lion that, um, you know, you're not always, it's not going to be easy to, you know, shoot on foot. Yeah. And, you know, with particularly in that case of that project, we were only seeing the animals that broke free from the snare that was attached to a tree. What about all these other hyenas or wild dogs and stuff that didn't break free and are dead in a, in a snare? Um, so snaring is a major issue that isn't really publicized, like just direct shooting, but it is, I mean, it, in a place like Kafui National Park where I live, if the Zambian carnivore program wasn't doing that kind of work, it could wipe out a lion population very quickly. And you guys, uh, listeners should check out the Zambian carnivore program's website because they have a lot of, they do a lot of cool stuff. And they also have some pretty cool graphics and things about their anti-snaring efforts. Like, like you know, this one lion 10 years ago was desnared. And then she had cubs, and then her cubs had cubs, and like basically from this one lion being desnared, there's like dozens and dozens of lions that have resulted from that, and so it's just an amazing um, thing to show. But anyways, um, again, I digress. So those those are like other major ways that people could be directly killing wildlife, and there's you know a variety of reasons why people might be doing this, and um, it's a lot more complex and people think you know the average person thinks oh people are killing lions those people should be killed and and pretty extreme opinions like that and Mm -hmm. the reality is it's a lot more complex than that which is how this comes to be a social issue as well because some people are just you know killing animals for food just for subsistence because they live in rural areas and that's i mean that's what that's how people historically lived they hunted animals Mm -hmm. but because of overhunting, it's 
just not sustainable to to hunt animals for subsistence right now in a lot of places. Some people could also be killing them for the bushmeat trade, which is is eventually used for food, but that's just meat that is basically trafficked, um, which is a major issue in Africa because um, people in Africa really like their meat and they think that that's the only way you can get protein. And um, so, you know, animals are killed and the meat is smoked and, and shipped, especially to Central Africa, like the Congo and stuff like that. It's, it's a pretty significant trade. Another example is, you know, people could be um, killing animals sort of as a retaliation if a, a predator killed their livestock or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if listeners heard our Hawaiian monk seal episode, they were killing monk seals because they think they're competing with them for fish. And so, you know, that's another, those are a couple other reasons why people would be illegally killing wildlife. Um, the illegal wildlife trade, which we'll expound upon in the next episode, you know, people think it's cool to have exotic live wild animals as pets. And it's very lucrative for people that can supply those animals taken from the wild to this, this trade. How about this countercultural rebellion? Yes. So most of our episode today will be covering this type of topic, countercultural rebellion is another reason why people engage in poaching. This was, this still occurs today, um, but it occurred mostly historically. Um, a countercultural rebellion, for example, is um, would have been peasants rebelling against new laws to protect the rich in medieval Europe. And I, I will be talking about that. So um, because those laws were built to protect the nobility, peasants in rebellion would... Um, disregard the laws and inherently become poachers um, just for disregarding those laws. And that's countercultural rebellion, which does still occur um, today, not not quite as much as it did back in history. But yeah, so that's another reason why people will, will take wildlife. Or just like sport, like I know you have, well, we've both seen, you know, people just shooting prairie dogs for fun, which in some places that is not illegal. Where I worked in Montana on a protected area where it was illegal, we got camera trap footage of people doing it, um, driving around in their car and just, you know, people are kind of twisted and they just like to see prairie dogs blow up when you shoot them with (laughs) a gun. Um, So that can be a form of poaching and should be illegal everywhere, I think. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so who is doing this poaching? Um, you know, like I said, could be rural people that just want to put food on the table. A lot of times, people that are maybe selling meat to the bushmeat trade are just people that live in rural areas that want to have enough money to send their kids to school, which is where I think that this issue becomes extremely complex yep. because how can you neglect that and and disregard that and say that wildlife is more important than people and i think that you know this is this um idea that you know people are trying just trying to get money to send their kids to schools from um panthera did this um bushmeat study and they learned that from interviews and stuff and that kind of paints a new picture on a lot of this poaching especially where I was in Western Zambia because 
you want you want these children to be able to go to school um, and I, I'm not just talking like I'm not talking about like kids going to college I'm talking about basic yeah elementary school and stuff so that that makes it really difficult and I don't I hope that now that this kind of information is out here that there's going to be more efforts into addressing this issue and I don't have I don't have answers to how to how to solve that because that's a really that's a real challenging thing to to deal mm-hmm. with um you know there's also there's people that are poaching commercially and that's you know, sometimes that's for the bushmeat trade you know they're just they're making a profit out of it that's what they're going like this that's their job they don't work they just poach for a living and then like i hinted at you know there's these criminal syndicates that are sometimes they're doing they're involved in the direct killing but a lot of times they're buying from local people that have done the poaching and then they're the ones that distribute it nationally or internationally and you know sometimes that's the same case with especially in Africa and Central Africa like rebel militias or warlords or terrorists you know they they try to control the natural resources to maintain their power by by poaching and you know trading things like ivory for weapons or trading live animals to help fund their militias. Um, so, you know, there's just so many, so many players involved in this and it's hard to generalize mm-hmm. um, poachers, you know, yeah. um, which is why this is, is such a complex um, topic. And then finally, you know, who are the people that are buying wildlife illegally? You know, how are these people making money off of this? and the people that are selling it and doing the poaching. Um, and like a lot of people are probably familiar with it. It's a lot of Asian countries that believe in medicinal properties of a lot of wildlife products, you know, most notably rhino horn or lion and tiger bones or bear bile, which is, I think is, uh, I don't even know what to say cause it's so disturbing. Yeah, it um, the production, these bear bile farms. So bear bile is um, the substance that's made in the organs of certain organs of bears. And people in certain Asian countries believe it has medicinal purposes because bears are special in some way. And so there's just, they catch bears from the wild and they put them in tiny cages. And sometimes they just have farms of cages filled with bears and they put a catheter in and just pump out this bile and, and sell Mm -hmm. it. Um, And I just, that's a bigger issue to me than um, lions or elephants. And I mean, it's, it's some of the most disturbing stuff I've ever seen related to wildlife. And, you know, if you, if people look that up, it's some pretty graphic stuff Yeah, and it's, it's just pretty heartbreaking and terrible. Um, but anyways, in, in China alone, so China is a huge culprit in a lot of this they are estimated to have like something like 10,000 bears of different species in captivity for bile production, which is like larger than the natural populations of some of these bears. Um, And then China also has the the largest, China is also the largest ivory consumer. You know, a lot of these Asian countries, they value ivory as like a form of wealth. So that's where 
a lot of this ivory is going and where people are buying it. Another thing that's harder to narrow down, but, um, you know, people in Asia, like in many Asian countries, like to decorate their homes with, you know, trafficked wildlife animal parts, you know, like lion paws or gorilla hands or one that I've been told about is that people in Japan like to have the skins of saddlebills, which is the stork species that I'm studying. Um, they like to have the skins of saddlebills up on their walls just as decoration, which is pretty bizarre. And then in a lot of places, just in traditional cultures, they use skins for ceremonial dress. I mean, I've been in the capital of Zambia and seen people wearing like cheetah and serval skins, like in their traditional dress. And Panthera, the organization Panthera is doing a lot of work, especially in South Africa with providing like fake skins for that. Yeah, I've heard of that. That's so awesome. That they're not taking leopards and stuff. And they, they have a really amazing program in that. Um, and then finally, you know, like we already said, people that think it's cool to have wild animals, pets are buying trafficked wildlife because they see it on social media. And I'm just, well, I just want to briefly say this because we'll go more into it, but just the influence of TV and social media on wildlife trafficking is disturbing. Yeah. Um, you know, documentaries have changed the way that people view wildlife in many ways in a positive way, but in, I would say almost most ways in a negative way, because one, they have a unrealistic view of wildlife and, and nature. And also it makes them think in some cases that that is an amazing, awesome animal. And I want it. Yep. Um, yeah, I, so. I'm super passionate about that topic too. Um, the other day I was scrolling through Netflix, of course, and saw a program called, I think the title of the program was unusual pets or something like that. And like the splash page is like somebody with some exotic animal. And I just, I didn't even click on it. I was so angry to see that, um, because it just really, propagates the idea that exotic animals can be pets and they are not pets. And I am very no nonsense about that. And sometimes to the point of being offensive. Our next, but... our next episode about that is, is going to be, uh, going to be thought provoking to say the yeah. least. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so anyway, so that's yeah. just like an overview. Why don't you tell us about the history of poaching that you kind of put together mm -hmm. for us? Yeah, sure. Okay. So Poaching has been around for as long as laws and ownership of natural resources have been around. And if you really want to explore the, com the complexity of attitudes towards poaching, um, all the things that Jonah just talked, talked upon, um, you have to start a few hundred years back in time. You can go even farther um, because uh, the first recorded laws over natural resources date back to the Roman Empire. This is in the Western world, of course. I have to say that most of the research I found was very sort of Eurocentric. So there's a lot about the history of poaching in Asia and the Asian continent uh, and even in Australia that I couldn't really find a lot of info about. So we definitely welcome our, our listeners, if you have anything to say about that, um, to connect with us. But anyway. I've, I've, I've read, um, I read this article about even Chinggis Khan and... Well, yeah, Chinggis Khan, he like had laws about people poaching wildlife because he wanted the right to right, yep. kill whatever he wanted and he didn't want anyone else killing him. But it 
I mean, obviously that's so long ago, it's hard to tell, but this article was getting at like, that was sort of a beginning of, of like wildlife management or conservation in a way, because he was making it, I mean, you could get killed if you killed an animal because they were his. And it was like that with a lot of the, the Chinese dynasties too. Yeah. They had these game parks where they protected people from killing the wildlife. Yeah. So that's all I know yeah, about. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's good that. to know. That's awesome. Because um, that's exactly one of the trends we'll be talking about, which is um, the exclusive rights of the nobility and royalty to hunting and access to, to land for hunting. So basically, when we talk about the history of poaching, you can track severe hunting restrictions to a couple of main factors. Um, and those are nobility law, just like you said with, with Khan and... Um, and actually, surprisingly, the, the rise of the wealthy middle class. And I'll go more into that um, as well. And so those kind of two um, social factors really drive law and policy in, in most, if not all, countries um, and societies. And you can track the increase in poaching to um, the resulting socioeconomic instability and inequality that um, these laws and protections of nobility cause, uh, which you can see all across the globe. You can go to any small town in the U.S. or any big city in Africa and see socioeconomic inequality. And of course, that's that always comes with corruption. So increase in poaching uh, always comes hand in hand with those two things, socioeconomic instability and corruption. So all of these factors are interconnected. And as Jonah was saying, this is a huge topic, so we can't cover every single law, we can't cover every single country, but I'm going to give you some highlights that I believe are representative of some of the global global trends in poaching history. So for example, when everything I'm about to say, you're going to be able to connect that to everything Jonah just said about um, Asian dynasties. Okay, so we're going to start in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, so the 1500s and 1600s, where you can basically track the invention of poaching in the Western world. Um, of course, we all know that poaching has been around um, since time immemorial, you could really say. The first laws in Europe uh, were passed during these couple of centuries, especially during the 1600s especially during the 1600s, to protect feudal territory holders. So feudal territory holders, um, if you remember your history class, um, those were all nobility, people of nobility. And these laws uh, gave these people of nobility the exclusive rights to hunt and fish on their land. So they wanted exclusive rights to hunt and fish. That was their main goal. So in order to do that, um, they incorporated these rights into their land ownership laws. So it was permissible only for nobility with land worth more than 100 pounds, which was a lot in medieval Europe, uh, to hunt and fish on their land. Um, so if you were a peasant um, or a farm owner or a serf who didn't have land worth 100 pounds or more, you couldn't, you couldn't hunt big game on it. So now all of a sudden peasants and those who were not of the nobility became statutory poachers. So by statutory, I, I mean they were criminals only because of the law. They were criminals only because of new statutes in the law. So it was almost overnight. Like one day they're hunters, the next day they're poachers. So on their own low value land and farms, they were permitted to hunt small game for subsistence for subsips for subsistence. <laughs> so on their own low value land and farms, peasants were permitted to hunt small game for subsips. I screwed it up again. <laughs> but 
Anyway, for subsistence, but large game and hunting on the majority of land because nobility owned most of the land was prohibited for these people. Um, so this was all occurring in the 16th and 17th centuries. And earlier I talked about the countercultural rebellion. Uh, many peasants and their communities began to rebel against this. And even today, actually, um, in certain parts of the world, communities will stand behind poachers um, as sort of a countercultural rebellion against laws, against um, royalty, against corruption, that sort of thing. But yeah, so meanwhile, in the United States, um, as we all know, Europeans were colonizing uh, North and South America, and all of a sudden, well, obviously over several years of genocide and war, but all of a sudden the indigenous people <laughs> couldn't hunt as they traditionally did, and they had to request permission or else they were automatically statutory poachers. And of course, there's, I mean, that's yet another whole book or series of books on indigenous hunting rights and colonialism um, across the globe. So that was... That's kind of how poaching was invented, so to say, basically by statutory law. Um, so, yes, um, as Jonah mentioned, you can even go back to the Chinese dynasties and see the same trend where suddenly a law that's, that is passed to protect the nobility, the royalty, makes poachers out of hunters. That is no longer exactly the case everywhere, but we'll, as I go through the centuries, you'll see how some of this has changed. So moving on to the 18th century, the 1700s, we saw a huge rise in nobility and colonialism. So the European and colonial nobility began to use hunting as a demonstration of their superiority in class. And we still see this today, you know, and excuse me. So essentially, you know, you, you hear of um, like hunting parties of the nobility going out to hunt fox or, or things like that. Th those are demonstrations of wealth. Those are demonstrations of class. Um, peasants were not permitted to do that. Um, and even now, if you're poor, you can't afford to live that kind of lifestyle. And of course, there are different rules restricting that sort of thing in Europe now as, as well and, and, and the United States. But anyway, um, in the 18th century, in the 1700s, the anti-poaching laws in Europe became so strict that if you were a peasant caught with hunting equipment or even a dog of the hunting variety or even black hoods or face paint in your possession, you could be hanged. And this is, like Jonah was saying about Genghis Khan, this is a trend. Uh, royalty want all the natural resources, not only land, but also wildlife for themselves. And everybody else is screwed. So in 1723, an act was passed in the UK called the Black Act. And this was the first time I'd heard of this. But it was basically an act that imposed a death penalty on poachers associated with groups calling themselves the Blacks. And they call themselves the Blacks because they went out at night dressed in all black so that they're camouflaged, they're hard to see. They even sometimes um, painted their skin black to kill game illegally, basically to poach game. But these were people, it, it began as people who needed to feed their families. And like any semi-organized group, there, there were some pockets of it who, you know, were otherwise perfectly law-abiding citizens, and there were some pockets of it who were, you know, brigands and bad people, uh, scofflaws and outlaws. Regardless of your intentions, the UK passed the Black Act, and many, many peasants were killed under this act. Um, if they were, if they were caught poaching, even if they weren't all dressed in black, um, they were killed under this act, and that act 
persisted for 100 years, and it wasn't until 1823 that the act was repealed. It was deemed inhumane, basically uncivilized, far too harsh. Um, Gotta love the British. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but during this time, during the 1700s, as I was just saying, the majority of poachers were poor and they hunted to feed their families and and they hunted for subsistence. But because of... It's, it's just this interesting trend where the law made them criminals and so it kind of bred this the it opened the door for more criminal activity um and this is definitely the case when it comes to poaching i'm not i'm not i'm not saying you know a blanket wide statement about all illegal things but with poaching this is how it works as people were poaching a lucrative black market began to grow and people's intentions behind poaching began to change so um, many poachers all of a sudden they weren't actually doing it to feed their family now they were doing it for money um, now where they were doing it for the lucrativeness of the market, um, which, of course, you see a lot of today as well. So I'm going to try also to include Africa in a lot of this because, um, as we've already touched upon, Africa is a huge uh, theater for poaching. Uh, there are a lot of exotic animals in Africa, animals that are considered special in Africa. And in Africa during the 18th century, the rapid expansion of colonialism from Europe, along with hunting restrictions, led to a rise in poaching, just as it did across the Mediterranean. So that's all happening kind of in the 1900s uh, as nobility and colonialism um, really begin to rapidly spread. So we're going to move on to the 19th century, which is kind of the century that I call the rise of the status symbol. Now, we've already had status symbology involved with poaching, as, as I was just uh, mentioning, involved with hunting. But in the 19th century, there was a vast worldwide rise of the middle class in Europe, Asia, Africa, the United States. And because of this rise in the middle class, uh, more of these up-and-comers, these people who wanted to prove their status, were pressured to put that status on display. Much of these status symbols, uh, as we spoke of earlier, were made of ivory, uh, which was the huge thing. Pelts, feathers. Of course, we all know what happened to the passenger pigeon. Um, not that 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 was that was legal hunting, but anyway. Um, and other exotic animal parts, even animal collections. So people were even putting together menageries of live animals, which were poached and smuggled um, from the wild. So you saw that really skyrocketing in the 19th century. And as a response to colonialism in many countries, including many African countries, European hunters who were coming in colonizing were actually often prosecuted by the indigenous royalty or even the African royalty for hunting on their lands. So this is basically, this is, it's not just Europeans who do this, you know, obviously. It's royalty anywhere, like we mentioned with Genghis Khan. So that, that was happening in the 19th century. Of course, the Europeans turned that, out, turned that around quite quickly. So in 1900, with the rise of European power in Africa, um, all European colonial states enacted laws that made it illegal for African people to hunt wildlife. So now all of a sudden, if you were African, overnight, you if you were a hunter, you automatically became a, a poacher on European land. I won't go through the whole, um, my, all my issues with colonialism. Like, um, I could really get sidetracked. 
a whole podcast on yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. You could do a whole <laughs> podcast on that. Um, and Africa, of course. We should. We, we should. should. Yeah, no, we should. <laughs> it, like, I'll, uh, I was going to say this at some point, but I'll say it now as well. Um, human conflict touches everything. All living creatures are touched by human conflict. Um, so it's, 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 inter- it's intertwined. I mean, like we said in the beginning of this podcast, when we first started recording this, this is about the human wildlife interface. And right now I'm talking about people and this is, this is how society and social issues and government and history affects wildlife in negative ways, uh, when we're not careful with it. So moving on to the 20th century, the 1900s, as I already said, I kind of call this the, the the damage control century, um, because there was a lot of um, responsive damage control going on. In 1900, the Lacey Act was passed in the U.S., so if you're a conservationist, you're, you're familiar with this. And the Lacey Act does many things, including game restoration efforts. It, it does many things. It's a big act. Uh, you should look into it. But it also prohibited the trade of poached wildlife and plants across state lines and enacted both criminal and civil penalties. And it made smuggling, basically, which is... Um, a big part of poaching, obviously, um, a federal crime is what the Lacey Act did. So that discouraged a lot of the a lot of the smuggling that was going on in the United States. Around the same time, uh, the early 20th century, in 1918, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was passed, and again, this is a really well-known one for conservationists. Um, it incorporates many, many species, um, and it also brought more hunting and trading restrictions to North America. So. As I said, it was kind of damage control. The government began realizing that poaching and smuggling was was a threat to economic stability, um, and so they and as well as obviously wildlife, just inherently uh, a threat to conservation. And during this time, especially in the United States, conservation was its conservation efforts were were improving drastically. In the mid twentieth century, uh, back on the African continent. By, by that time, most African nations had become independent from colonial rule. So obviously there was still a lot of conflict, but the, the colonial Europeans were kind of uh, getting pushed back out. And hunting restrictions were lessened. Obviously, it was no longer illegal for an African to hunt. But poaching laws still persisted, still existed, mostly against poaching for market trade. I'm <laughs> doing it again. <laughs> um Mostly against poaching for market trade. Um, so I, I know I'm going through this history really quickly, but I just want to touch like the the most important points in the trend of of the rising crisis um, that is poaching. So in the next episode, we're going to talk a lot about CITES probably, but very briefly, I want to give you a, a quick introduction to CITES in case um, you're not familiar with it. It was established in 1963, and this is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. And this is basically kind of like the the whaling convention. It's an agreement between member nations to establish laws in each nation protecting wildlife, specifically endangered species, from smuggling and from trade and uh, from import and export. And CITES has... And it's not just, it's not just wildlife... And I guess we should have said that in the yeah, beginning that yep. we're going to be focusing on wildlife, but this is like plants and fish. Um, this goes far beyond wildlife and mm-hmm. CITES includes basically all living organisms. Yep. 
and that's like yeah the plant trade and stuff is also pretty wild but we won't cover that we definitely um encourage people to look into the the plant life trade as well because it's insane and it's not something many people think of when they think of trafficking but it's it's pretty crazy so CITES established three appendices, Appendix 1, 2, and 3, with varying protections against trade. Appendix 1 is the most strict, and so on. And the reason I mention CITES is because, as, we, as we've already touched on the issue of African elephant poaching, um, one of the reasons this is such a big issue is because ivory was the number one status symbol in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, not only for the rising middle class, but also obviously for um, nobility, royalty, and the ri- and the wealthy, and the extremely wealthy. So in the 1970s and 80s, so CITES was established in 1963. So obviously they were recognizing that this that smuggling was a problem in the 1970s and 80s. This is the this these were the decades where the African elephant population was halved because of poaching. At that time, ivory was worth about two. American dollars and 45 cents a pound. And because it was so lucrative, uh, CITES in 1989 banned the trade of ivory. And when I say CITES banned the trade of ivory, it's a, like I said, it's an agreement between countries to follow um, a ten, a, a, an agreed upon tenant. And they all agreed, okay, we're going to ban the trade of, of ivory. And after that, ivory prices plummeted. And of course, not all countries were behind this, as I've already alluded to. Botswana was one of the countries that was not behind this. Zambia was also not behind it. Or, yeah, Zambia. Namibia, surprisingly, um, was not for it, which surprises me. We should talk about Namibia in a whole episode one day. And South Africa. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. 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 Oh, my. it's happening. It's happening. (laughs) Yes. Um, And South Africa was not behind it either. Um, They protested the ban, but it went through in 1989. Ivory prices, as I said, they plummeted and elephant and African elephant numbers began to recover. And this is a trend you'll see throughout the world, this sort of reactionary, no nonsense sort of strict law that will be put into place when when the government realizes, uh oh, like we've let this go on too far, we're losing this natural resource, uh, we've just got to, we've got to ban something entirely. Like we, we have to institute a ban. Now, I, I do want to take a moment here to mention the, um, the supply demand slash limited resource aspect of poaching and how this all affects the values of the illegal market. So I wanted to especially make the make the point that the end game for poachers is to cause the extinction of their target animals. And I know this seems this might seem to some people a little counterintuitive because you might think something like, well, how can a pangolin poacher expect to keep up this lifestyle when pangolins go extinct? But the fact is that the fewer there is of these natural resources, the more valuable they become. So And that's that's again it's very difficult to generalize across all poachers, but that's the people that are making the big money on it like the the person that whatever catches a pangolin and sells it for like the equivalent of you know a meal Mm -hmm. um like the price of a meal that person they're just again trying to make trying to survive it's it's the these bigger you know the criminal syndicates and the people that are doing the trading and and making the big bucks on it that's what their goal is because 
They just got dollar signs in their eyes. Yeah, thank you. That's a really important dis- distinction because the one, the poachers on the ground, most of them are just trying to feed their families. And they live in socioeconomically troubled communities where there's a lot of socioeconomic inequality. And, you know, they've got the option of a legitimate job that barely feeds them and their family or risking their lives um, for ivory or animal parts, pangolin scales. And of course, if, if they risk their lives, and as Joan alluded to, for a portion of the value that eventually reaches um, the more organized syndicates and those that are actually driving the market and driving these animals to extinction. So yes, that is definitely an important distinction. And we'll talk more about that in the next episode, probably, because that's important to, to nail down as well. And like Jonah said, you, you can't generalize across the board, um, but that's kind of the trend. So um, I wanted to touch on that. And now we can go back to the history. By the late 1980s, the price of ivory rose to over 140 US dollars a pound. And most of that money, as we said, goes to the syndicates and the higher up organized members of this chain. Um, the poachers themselves get a small percentage of it, but it's still more than they would get if they tried working legitimate jobs in these unstable communities they live in. So basically, the, the last four centuries, the 18th, 19th, 20th, and even now into the 21st century, these were kind of the trends of uh, as as poaching grew from a sort of what you might call folk crime where all of a sudden hunters became poachers and it was all peasants who were who were criminals. It grew and became just this monster, this illicit market monster that, as Jonah said earlier, is a billion dollar industry. Um, so it it grew basically, as I said, from rise of nobility, rise of corruption, colonialism, all these things that that if you really look at it are drivers of social and economic instability and strife and even war. These are the kind of environments that breed illicit markets in wildlife trade, uh, which of course is fed by poaching. So getting into the 21st century, which is a century we are now in, um, this is the crisis century, um, but it's also the century of adaptation. In the early 2000s, Asian demand for for ivory rose steeply again with another rise in the middle class, especially in China's biggest cities, and especially in Hong Kong as well. And because of this, um, poaching in Africa increased because of the demand in Asia. And there were the the Chinese government has gone back and forth about banning ivory and then like, oh, but you can sell ivory that's grandfathered in. Like if you had ivory from before the ban, you can sell it. And this kind of legal market really just means that the illegal market can walk around in sheep's clothing. That's all it does. It doesn't, um, that's, it, we'll talk more about that in the next episode, but this, this is, this is what's been happening in the 2000s. This is still a growing problem. It's not abating. It's not ebbing at all. And of course, because of conflicts in Central Africa, especially in the Congo, plus the demand in Asia, poaching just really skyrocketed again. And poaching became really easy because of all the, all the conflicts. And I also want to add that you, you're talking about like the rise in the price of ivory. So you said in the 1980s, it hit 140 US dollars per pound. Mm-hmm. Well, in January 2015, there was a, um, a shipment 
of ivory seized in Uganda, and its estimated street value was 973 U.S. dollars per pound. So that's just to sort of wrap it up at how much the price of ivory has gone up since the $2.45 per pound in the the 70s. Yeah, I'm glad you had a more more recent number because that's, yes, that's insane. So yeah, despite all the restrictions, despite all the laws, despite CITES, despite the conventions and agreements, there's just, there's nothing that can stop corruption. And there's, I don't want to say there's nothing that can stop the wildlife trade because that's all doom and gloom. There are solutions, which especially we'll talk about next episode, but conflict, especially conflict and corruption, especially are continuing to feed this monster. And speaking of conflict, I did want to mention Al-Shabaab, which if you don't know who Al-Shabaab is, it's a relatively new, um, in terms of organization, it's been around for much longer than people might think, but it's a relatively new Al-Qaeda-associated militant group out of Somalia, and they have turned to poaching to fund their terrorism activities. And Jonah alluded to this earlier in the episode, that many terrorist organizations and militant groups do use poaching to fund their efforts to fund their activities. Um, this is a very lucrative industry. So yes, so at some point we will do an episode on human conflict and its effects on conservation. So this brings us to the present. Uh, of course, there's much, much more to say about the history of poaching worldwide, but I've just gone over the typical trends. First, laws to protect royalty made poachers out of honest hunters. Then, as poaching became both a crime of survival as well as a crime of rebellion, the activities led to an illicit market, which was much more lucrative. As the market grew, organized groups and government corruption from the municipal to international levels drove the resources down and the values up, leading to a multi-billion dollar industry in wildlife trafficking. The demand for this industry, of course, is provided for by poachers on the ground. And... Yeah, so basically that's kind of the history of the rise of poaching in a very quick summary, pretty reductive, but we, we'll we'll include some links so that you can read some more yourself because it's important to explore all the trends and um, it's just more than we can possibly cover in our podcast. Yeah, that was actually really amazing. You should write a book on that. <laughs> I I might. That, that was that was really really amazing. Yeah, I'm, it's it's crazy stuff. Yeah, it is. And gosh, we're only just scratching the surface with all this. I think so. We made a lot of promises about the next episode. Yeah, we did. So we should <laughs> next episode. <laughs> maybe the next two episodes. Now I'm thinking the next two episodes because I I think the next episode we could cover. Um, and since people are hearing this, we're going to have to yeah. stick to it. <laughs> we're setting our own goals. Yeah. Um, you know, just talking more about the market. I think also talking about enforcement, which we didn't yes. talk about at all That's here. Right. Yes. Because that is a whole issue in and of itself. Um, because it's very, you know, how do you enforce someone? How do you enforce laws against poaching when... Some of these people are in like the middle of the wilderness Mm -hmm. and obviously anti-poaching scouts and and rangers can't cover everywhere. And I definitely have some stuff to share about where I was in Africa. And so I think um, we should cover that. And then 
maybe give some more examples about the ways that people poach, um, expounding upon what I said at the beginning. And then I think we should have a whole episode about the illegal wildlife trade. <laughs> Because we can't combine that with something else. We have too much to say on I it. I think you're right. I think you're right. We'll have to split it um, split it into two. But I also have a lot to say on um, the issues of justice and criminalizing poachers. And Yeah, people get, people get really extreme and emotional about poaching. Yep. Yeah. And I don't want to say that that's wrong, but, you know, I think that people... <laughs> People are more important than animals, but that doesn't mean that wildlife should be valued less. And especially on social media, you know, just just like in our first episode, we covered Dr. Filardi getting cyberbullied about that taking that kingfisher specimen. Mm-hmm. When there's news about poaching on Facebook or something, I mean, I've seen some horrible comments like really nasty stuff about what should happen to poachers. And obviously these people don't understand that this was someone that just, you know, has three kids and wants them to be able to eat and stuff like that. And so, you know, people just need to be informed before they start talking about this stuff. Yeah, that'll definitely be something we'll have to delve into as well. Um, The the human aspect of this and and the human rights aspect of this as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so we'll just discuss... All of this and more in the next couple episodes, and you know, try to try to get at as much as we can about this really complicated issue and the really complicated solutions. You know, like I already said, there's like you know, I don't, I don't even have ideas of solutions for some of these things, but there's a lot smarter people on it than me. <laughs> Okay, so in closing, um, for each episode, I'm going to share a little tip about how to live more sustainably. And uh, my first one, this is going to sound pretty silly, but I think um, the little things you can make a difference... We all love tortillas. (laughs) You didn't think it was going that direction, did you? We all love tortillas. But, you know, these tortillas come in plastic wrappers, obviously, like everything in our world. And they come in, you know, packs of 10 or something. Um, And so every time you want to have tortillas, you have to buy a new pack of plastic wrapped tortillas. But my solution is to, you know, go to a local Mexican restaurant, bring your own Tupperware or a Ziploc bag. I have a Ziploc bag that I've been using for many, many, many months. And just go in there and say, can I order this many tortillas? Have them put it directly in the container or the Ziploc and you're on your way. And you can just keep reusing that container or that Ziploc and still be getting tortillas. And I might add that these tortillas are going to be way better than like the mission tortillas you buy plastic wrapped in a grocery store. So that is my tip for the week. So yeah, if you um, if you have any questions or comments about poaching, uh, the other day I I posted on our Facebook page uh, to come come at us with comments or questions. Um, please do. We'd love to share them on the podcast. 
Um, so yeah, we want to hear from you. We're at Facebook. We're on Facebook at Conservation Chronicles and on Twitter at wait, our Twitter is our Twitter also. <laughs> no, we don't have Twitter. <laughs> we have Instagram. Oh, one of the other social media. That's, yeah, one of <laughs> on Instagram <laughs> at Conservation Chronicle. That's right. And I'll share some photos, um, and you guys can comment on those. And if there's anything that we didn't really cover that you think we should cover, let us know because we can't think of everything. Um, and then also, you can download our other episodes uh, at our website, conservationchronicles.podbean.com or whatever app you use for listening to your podcasts. Yes, and so. leave us a five-star review. <laughs> Cheerio. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was a nod to, like, the British colonialism. <laughs> okay, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>